Um, it's easy to come thinking, are they, are they singing our favorite songs today? Or how's he going to preach on that text? Or will so-and-so be there? In reality, we really want to make this about Jesus. So hopefully every Sunday you leave knowing that's been the focus. And you are on the ball, bro. You know what? He set an example. So uh, kids, we got a Peterson jar here. For those that don't know, this Peterson jar is for... You want to carry it around? Okay, just make sure all the kids get it. Uh, we support a young man named Peterson from Haiti. We have been supporting him since uh, roughly the big earthquake that hit Haiti and this money that these kids give and that they take the jar around and others give. I bet you somebody right over here might give you. You walk down that aisle, somebody will give you something. Um, this money helps uh, Peterson's schooling. It helps him get clothes. It helps support his family some. Um, and uh, go ahead, and those kids could head on downstairs. John, thank you for, for teaching them today. Heidi, you as well, thank you. Being disciples, making disciples even of our kids. Kendra, thank you. You guys are all looking for the jar, right? For the older kids that are staying in here, if you have a kid's bulletin, go ahead and fill it out afterwards, turn it in, and uh, we'll, get some, we'll get a candy or three, depending on how many the parents want to give. Wow, this is great. So while she's finishing up that jar, go ahead and uh, raise your hand if you watched the Super Bowl last week. Just quick, I mean, not a trick question. Nothing spiritual about it, okay? Uh, I won't even mention the teams that were in there. Um, did you watch the pregame at all? I'm specifically thinking the, the National Anthem. Okay, so if you saw the National Anthem, you, you saw her singing it. Who, who was she? Lady Gaga, right? I, hey, I'll be, I'll be frank with you, okay? I was pleasantly surprised. Um, she sang a very beautiful rendition of it, which surprised me because um, I did not know of Lady Gaga for her vocal abilities. <laughs> I didn't even say the next sentence. You guys are laughing. Okay, well, I've, I've, we've known of her for other things. Okay, like, well, let's see, like her hair. Just a, a couple of quick pictures. That one's impressive. I was going to fix my hair like that this morning, and then I realized I don't have that much hair. Okay, we've known of her for her jewelry, perhaps. There's some fancy jewelry, if you can't really see it. One, I was going to wear that same necklace again, but I couldn't find it this morning. And there's a great one of her. Okay? We're also known of Lady Gaga for her dresses. That's a nice one. Another good one, and of course, maybe her most famous dress. Dress, it's meat, for those that don't know. It's raw meat. Um, you know, I think that if you polled most of America, at least those halfway familiar with pop music, they would... Most people would talk about her hair, her jewelry, her dresses, rather than her vocal ability, right? <clears throat> I thought about putting up some pictures of some well-known Christians who are known for their big hair, their elaborate jewelry, or their expensive clothing. I decided against it. Instead, this morning, I want to ask the question, what should we be known for? Should we be known for going with the trends? Or should we be known for kicking against the culture? I want to ask for God's blessing on, 
our time in His Word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I want to come before you humbly. I want to come before you recognizing that this is your Word to us. And I recognize, Lord, that I come to this with, uh, with a specific lens that I'm looking at it through. I pray, Father, you would, uh, as we've been talking about, you would focus this into pointing towards Christ. And I pray that you would be brought glory through our time in your word. Guide it, uh, direct it, may your spirit speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Over the next couple of weeks, starting today, we're going to be tackling some of the most controversial texts or passages in the Bible. And I want you to hear from the get-go that I do not have everything figured out. I do not have all the answers. I'm not the end-all, be-all when it comes to these texts or these passages, okay? So just know that. There have been people who've spent their lives studying these next seven verses, writing books on these verses, debating these verses amongst highly educated scholars. Me, I'm just trying to be faithful to the biblical text, trying to listen to what God has from this for us. I'm trying to come at these texts humbly and prayerfully. In fact, I'd covet your prayers today and over the next couple of weeks as we tackle these. Um, just because I say something, don't go quoting me as, he knows it all. He's got it masterfully figured out. Okay, I'm in process. Hey, well said, Bruce. Is that you? For those that couldn't pick that up and those listening online, we heard Bruce say, oh, don't worry, we won't. <laughs> something along those lines. <laughs> In the study that I've done, in the books that I've read, I've barely scratched the surface of this debate. In fact, speaking of scratching the surface, initially I was going to take this seven-verse section and do it in two weeks, and I realized there's no way we could do it in two weeks, so I'm going to do it in at least three, maybe more. We'll see. So, I'm going to start this morning reading the entire section that is very controversial, and then uh, we'll tackle what God has for us today. <coughs> Abby, let me grab that water right under you. Thanks. Sorry. Um, I'll be reading from the English Standard, Trans, uh, English Standard Version instead of what I normally preach out of the New Living. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and I believe it'll be up on the screen as well. Was that right? Maybe. Maybe not. Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first. Then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That is the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. Can you see why it would be controversial? Mm-hmm, me too. There's been many tears, much heartache. Much debate, much argument over centuries and centuries over this passage. This morning, we're going to try and tackle just verses 8 through 10. 
all the while keeping in the back of our mind that this is a smaller section to this larger section. Okay? So, 1 Timothy chapter 8 verses, excuse me, chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. <coughs> Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Sticking with the cultural norm versus bucking or kicking against the culture, what culture sees as okay. This is how I read this passage. We could even say that it's a small section addressing stereotypes. So let's look at it for a little bit through that lens. What is the stereotypical man supposed to look like today? (coughs) Go ahead and shout some things out. Jeans and t-shirts, okay. (coughs) Excuse me. Say that again? Alive. Alive, yes. Stereotypical man hopefully is alive. Hmm? Cell phone? Okay. Macho. Yeah? Maybe burly? I mean, dude's got a fantastic beard going. He's in, uh, he's in flannel. Yeah? <coughs> Maybe depicted doing something not very intelligent. Hair, axe, beard. Suit and tie, okay. Maybe independent, maybe willing to argue for his way. Perhaps a little burly, perhaps a modern-day gladiator or a lumberjack. Maybe some of those are the stereotypical men today. Well, if you go back 2,000-ish years, you'll get a similar stereotypical man. Yet Paul says, in every place, men ought to pray, lifting holy hands, not arguing, not quarreling, perhaps not being the stereotypical man. See, verse 8, we're going to start talking to the men, okay? It's directed at the men. It's a loaded verse with theological richness. Paul starts, I desire then that in every place. If you're reading from the New Living or another modern translation, perhaps you'll see a little bit more after that. Oftentimes those say, in every place of worship which then paints the picture for us to think of the specific, uh, maybe, location house churches where they were meeting in Ephesus, or for us, things of when we gather inside the church building. In essence, we may think what he was saying is, whenever you meet for church, pray like so. Whenever you gather together as a community of faith, pray like so. The phrase, in every place, would actually have created echoes to the Old Testament that the listeners of this letter would have recognized. One author says, In every place initiates an echo designed to invite the readers or the hearers to understand the significance of their entire worship activity, wherever they were, in an eschatological framework of God's redemptive promises to save all the nations. Now that's a mouthful. What that means is that these echoes would have reminded the people of what God had promised before. And long before this letter was written, God promised to save the nations. His heart was to invite all people into an opportunity for salvation, which, if you remember last week, was a big emphasis of what we started with in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul prayed, pray for all. 
people. Right? So in every place fits the universality of God's heart for the lost. Now the echoes to the Old Testament, are stem, they, they stem from the prophet Malachi, where the prophet is speaking for God. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. It says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, there's that phrase, in every place, Incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering, and my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So in every place, Paul starts, and we begin to hear not that a man should stand tall and stick his chest out, but that a man should have a heart for other people. That he should have a heart for those that don't know Christ, which in that day and in that culture would not have been the norm. In every place, Paul says, the men should pray lifting holy hands. Now our immediate thought with those next few words go towards a physical condition. Our thoughts go towards the raising up of hands. And I'm sure Paul intended that because that too would have created echoes to the Old Testament. Psalm 28 verse 2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Ezra, chapter 9, verse 5. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I, I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees and lifted my hands to the Lord my God. Psalm 142, 134, verse 2. Lift your hands towards the sanctuary and praise the Lord. It was believed back then that the lifting of hands in prayer added weight to the prayer. And this was also the normal posture for prayer. Today, we could probably say something like, go ahead and fold your hands and bow your head. And that would be the normal posture. For them, it was lifted hands. So Paul says, in every place, men should pray lifting holy hands. Now, Paul was intentional to say that, but I don't think that was his emphasis. I don't think the lifting up of hands is what Paul wanted us to emphasize. What type of hands were supposed to be lifted? Holy, okay? Holy hands. The Holman Bible Commentary says Paul's emphasis was on holiness, not on posture. He was saying pray out of a character of righteousness, of complete devotion to God, unpolluted with sin. The implication is that our standing before God must be right. Here's the hard fact. If you think you can gather to worship, Raise your hands in prayer or, you know, fold them and bow your head. And then after service, go and live however you want. I want to be bold enough to say God won't listen to your prayers. If you think you can gather to worship, fold your hands or lift them up and pray. And then leave and live however you want. I don't think God will listen to your prayers. One commentator writes that there is no reality in the prayers of the man who prays and then goes out to soil his hands with forbidden things, as if he never prayed. Ongoing, unaddressed, intentional sin will void your prayer attempts, no matter how ragged your knees are from bowing or how tired your arms get from raising your hands. Paul is saying, in every place, I want men whose lives are characterized by holiness Right action and right belief. I want men like that praying. It's kind of countercultural. 
Paul then says, these men must be free from anger and quarreling. Remember, he's kicking against culture here. No more macho. No more my way or the highway. I love how one author puts it. He says, anytime we pervert our identity in Christ and become entangled in divisions, factions, and chaos, anger and quarreling, the church's mission is compromised and our prayers are hindered. Our standing with others must be right. Am I making an overstatement if I say that might be challenging for a lot of men? Some of us tend to thrive on unrest. Some of us, our blood gets beating a little bit more when there's the potential for anger. We, we like to flare our peacock feathers. Yeah? Maybe I'm the only one. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving to Boise with my family for a gymnastics meet. Weather turned bad. It got really, really snowy and uh, like really, really snowy on whatever highway we were on. And there's three, four, five inches of snow there. And we actually just made the cutoff from where they, they closed the road. Um, but there were some snow plows. We got to the place where there were snow plows. They had plowed those three lanes. They had plowed the right lane and the middle lane, not the left lane. And all the traffic was backed up behind these snow plows. We were all just kind of, you know, moving along nice and slow. Well, the guy behind me didn't think I was moving fast enough. Big pickup, okay? So he zips into the right lane. I was in the middle, and he goes flying by. Didn't take him too long till he hit the traffic that was slowly going right there, too. While he turns his blinker on to get back into the middle lane. Look at, look at the guys. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, saw, I did the same thing. Sped right up, didn't let him in. As, uh, as he tried to scoot back and get behind me, he gave me a one-fingered wave. I gave him the stink eye. The guy behind me didn't let him in. The guy behind him didn't let him in. Four or five people didn't let him in. They, they saw his disregard for the safety of everybody else. Okay? I'm watching my rearview mirror. He finally gets in here. No, remember, right lane, middle lane have been plowed. We're, we're, we're making progress. We're going slow. We're making progress. Left lane hadn't been plowed. Well, this guy in his big truck decides, I'm going to get in the left lane. I'm going to fly by everybody. So he did. And he just went zooming by. And in my heart, I thought to myself, oh, please end up in the ditch. Not hurt, but just stuck to where you can. And I kid you not, I mentally pictured driving by, waving with all five fingers, okay, with a smirk on my face. I was angry at his disregard for me, for my family, and for the rest of the traffic that was around us. Yeah, you guys know what, yeah. 75% of the men are like shaking their head, yeah, we're doing the same thing. And the other 25% are thinking, oh, I, I, I'd admit it, I'd do the same thing. <laughs> Paul says, I want men who are free from anger and quarreling. Interesting thing is, Jesus had said the same thing. Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that our ancestors were told, or you have heard it said you should not commit murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you are... This is, this is bad, because I think I called the guy a bad name. Um, he said, if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus said that. 
And then Paul went on to say, I want men to pray without quarreling and anger. I want them to pray out of a lifestyle of holiness. Ouch. There's a relational component to this. See, anger indicates a lack of patience. It indicates a lack of kindness. It indicates a lack of forgiveness, all of which are requisite for the maintenance and fostering of relationships with other people and with God. Consequently, refusing to harbor anger and related feelings towards other people along with taking the necessary steps of forgiveness, it's a condition of effective prayer. Listen again to the words of Jesus right after the passage we just read, verse 23 and 24 in chapter 5 of Matthew. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, if you have gathered for church on a Sunday morning, and you remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Leave church. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. In a book called the Didache, which is the earliest book on church worship written about A.D. 100, the author says this, Let no one who has a quarrel with his neighbor come to us until they are reconciled. Free from anger. Free from quarreling. And quarreling what the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy to stop the false teachers for doing? I mean, wasn't their intention in the beginning of the First Timothy chapter 1, wasn't their intention to create dissension and division and quarreling? Spiritually and relationally, Paul is telling the men that you must be different than the stereotypical guy in society. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Got that, men? It's a big task. Let's now move to what Paul said to the women. I see a couple of you women are grinning. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. From the English Standard Version, likewise, Paul says also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Let me read that from the New Living also. Paul says, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. I want to tell you that Paul is not setting out a fashion statement for women. Okay? He's kicking against the culture. Now, I'd be failing you guys mightily if I failed to tell you what was going on in the culture in that day that this letter was written. In those days, there was a cultural shift going on. Okay? Jews and Greeks, not just Jews, Jews and Greeks, for years and years and years had lived in a patriarchal society. Women had had a very low place in society. They were often relegated to back rooms, often not let out in public, often just kept under the subordination of men. This was the way that life had been going on for years and years and years. But in Rome, and in Roman-driven cities in that day, a new Roman woman was emerging. It was maybe the first women's liberation movement. Women were claiming more rights, more freedoms, and pushing the limits of what society had for centuries deemed appropriate. 
This was especially true and more accessible for women who had means, who had money. If you read all of 1 Timothy, you'll see money is mentioned quite a few times. Paul is drawing, he's pointing towards this. Okay? This new Roman woman movement was catching on rapidly, and it caught on in Ephesus where Timothy is, and a lot of the people that study this, that debate this, that write books on this, they think that this verse and the verses that follow is Paul's way to address this new Roman woman. It's his way of saying, women in the church, don't buy into that. Don't buy into this new paradigm. He's, I'll say this as a primer for the next few weeks. He's not saying that women need to keep being squashed behind men. He's addressing something very much culturally here. Philip Towner writes, This innovative paradigm expressed itself in an extremely negative stereotype constructed of various kinds of generally prohibited behavior. Some women of means and position, both married and widowed, flouted traditional values governing adornment and dress and sexual propriety. The emergence of this movement was so disturbing to the status quo that Augustus issued legislation against it. Augustus was the Roman governor, not even a Christian. So this new paradigm for women was so concerning for even those highest up outside of the church that that they were saying, whoa! Paul says in verse 9, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing. Up until this new Roman woman paradigm, a particular dress code was in effect because with her outer dress, the woman would signal either modesty and dignity or promiscuous availability. I'm using some bigger words because we got some younger ears in here. Okay? So either a modesty and dignity or promiscuous availability. At this time in culture, the widely approved apparel of a wife was the stola. Kind of looked like that. Okay, a robe-like garment made of much cloth. As a, as a sign of marital fidelity and respectability, the stola presented an intentional contrast with the often more revealing and colorful clothing of the prostitute, known as a toga. Okay, that's a tame version. The toga was designed to signify this lady's shame, but frequently was used instead to advertise her wares. So again, this is not Paul saying, here's a dress code. It's him kicking against a new Roman woman culture. He's saying, <coughs> excuse me, he's saying, look, what you wear according to this new culture that is evolving is an indication of your moral values. Dress a certain way and society will think you're willing to act a certain way. We still think that way. Yeah? That's why there's still certain dress codes in certain schools. That's why there's still arguments about can junior high girls wear this? Or, I mean, that's still the thought process. Paul is saying what you wear makes a moral statement. And that's why Paul says to dress with modesty and self-control. In that culture, the word modesty, which could also be translated as decency, or shame, it dealt a lot with a woman's courtesy or behavior or respect for her husband. Paul is saying to dress in a way that when others see you, you will not bring shame 
on your husband. The Apostle Peter, in a very similar section of this one, was speaking of a wife's relationship with her husband when he wrote this. 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, In the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husbands, then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. And he goes on to say, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, and beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. So modesty, decency, in a lot of ways it speaks volume to how you value your spouse and how you valued people of the opposite gender. Now he also says, dress with self-control. We've heard this word. We've looked at this word in depth when we looked at second or at, at Titus. Self-control meant uh, using wisely every means you had to control every instinct. It spoke of an inner outlook that regulated outer behavior. If you remember, Paul, or Paul told Titus to tell older men and older women, model self-control to the younger men and younger women in your life. Now, anytime a word is used twice in the same section, we need to take note of it. So it's used here in verse 9, and it's also used in verse 15 at the end of this section, which we'll look at later. So pay attention to this idea of decency and self-control. Dress in such a way, as uh, the New Living puts it, that you do not draw attention to yourselves. That was the whole new Roman woman paradigm. Get all the attention drawn on them in not an appropriate way. Christianity and Paul wasn't the only one who was writing about this. The mystery religions, which a lot of the Greeks practiced, also spoke similar language. There was a quote found from the mystery religions that said, A consecrated woman should not have gold ornaments, nor rouge, nor face whitening, nor a headband, nor braided hair, nor shoes, except when those are made of felt or skins of sacrificed animals. Similar, yeah? These other religions were weighing in on this new Roman woman paradigm, this shifting dress style in that culture. That quote, of course, that quote takes us to the next things that Paul was addressing. Okay, still in verse 9, Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Remember, I mentioned that this new Roman woman thing was especially appealing to the wealthy. You hear hints of wealth in what Paul is saying. Braids, gold pearls, and expensive clothes. Braids. I mean, come on. Today, that's like one of the most tame hairstyles. You know, a good French braid or just your standard braid going down the, the back. I, I used to have hair that was long enough to braid. In fact, I came back from Alaska once before we were engaged, and I had a beard and a head full of braids. She says, you can keep the beard, the braids have to go. I still have the beard. I don't have enough for the braids. The hairstyle, okay? Back then, only the wealthy would have the means to get their hair braided. And it wasn't just your standard three-loop braid in the back of your head. I mean, we're talking plating your hair, piling it up on top of the head so that attention is drawn to yourself. Jewelry, back then... Jewelry epitomized sumptuousness, 
and was regarded as emblematic of the shameful woman. Gold came to be linked with the dress code for a highly paid prostitute, and pearls also occupied a place of caricature among imprudent ostentation. Again, using big words because we've got young ears in here. How many of you guys ever bought jewelry for your wife or for your mom or for a girlfriend? Okay, When you did that, were you doing it to, to say, hey, culture, she's sumptuous? No. But in that culture, that's what jewelry said. Wear too much gold, and, the, and, and they said, she works on Sprague. Serious. That's what Paul is addressing. Clothing, expensive clothing, showy expensive clothing, apparel that came to be associated with what with women drawing attention to themselves, which was the norm for the prostitute and the promiscuous woman. Fancy hairstyles, jewelry, clothes. Well, so much for your Valentine's Day date tonight, right? If we take this word for word literal. But if we put it back in the culture, what we'll realize is that Paul is saying the attention that's being drawn to by the new Roman woman is not the kind of attention that I want drawn to women in the church. Because if that attention is drawn to them in that way, it will, it will hinder the church's witness and mission and put those both in jeopardy. That's why Paul is saying what he's saying. Don't do this. Don't dress in such a way. Instead, he says... A lot of your versions have the word but. But, verse 10, but adorn yourself with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Or in the New Living, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Remember earlier I showed you a picture of Lady Gaga? Okay, here's another picture of her, I think. Very classy picture. She is not known for her good works. But did you know that when Haiti had the earthquake, the big earthquake, she did a concert and raised over half a million dollars for them. She has been part of raising over $160 million for research on AIDS and HIV. She raised $80,000 and helped generate 30,000 community service hours for homeless youth. Did you know that? Of course you didn't, because what is she known for? Her hair, her clothing, her flamboyancy. Paul tells Timothy to tell the women, kick against what is becoming the cultural norm. Be known for good works. Paul has a lot to say about good works. Many, many times throughout all of his letters, but especially in the pastoral letters that we're looking at. Okay, we see it here in chapter 2, verse 10. Speaking of widows seeking support from the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says they must have a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitalities, if she washed the feet of the saints, has she cared for the afflicted, has she devoted herself to every good work? This is just in the pastoral letters here, okay? In general instructions, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 25, so also good works are obvious, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Speaking to the rich, chapter 6, verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. When Paul wrote Timothy, he told Timothy, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Speaking of Jesus, 
Paul said, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for, help me out, good works. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Again, chapter 3, verse 8 in Titus. The saying is trustworthy. trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Finally, in Titus chapter 3, verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Many, many times in Paul's pastoral letters, he mentions good works. Too many times to mention. I will mention one story from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, there was a woman who was known for her good works. Anybody remember her name? Tabitha, or in Greek? Dorcas. Okay? She was known for being full of good works and acts of charity. Stories told that she died. People grieved. The women brought Peter all these coats and blankets and stuff that she had made for them. Peter brought her back from death to life, and we can assume that Tabitha continued doing the good works that she was known for. It didn't mention her hair. didn't mention her jewelry. didn't mention her dress. She was known for her good works. Back to our text today. Paul says, don't be known for what you wear or how you fix your hair. Be known for what you do. Especially, especially, I'm going to say it again. Especially, Paul says, if you're claiming to follow Christ. Did you catch that in our text? Verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Or in the other translation, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Professing, claiming to be, this suggests a serious and perhaps very public claim to be believers. So if you're going to claim Christ, you must be known for something. Not your hair, not your jewelry, not your designer jeans. You must be known for your good deeds towards society. At least that's what Paul seems to be saying. Man, this applies to us as well. Okay, if you're going to claim to be a Christ follower, you'd better be living in such a way that it does not diminish the witness of the church, the mission of the church, or the purposes of the church. Quite simply speaking, I think that in these three verses, Paul is saying there's some things in culture we need to kick back against. We live in a world today, in a culture today, that might need some kicking back against. Yeah, we live in a time where Paul may say the similar things to us that he said to the church in Ephesus. In fact, it's pretty easy for us to make some tangible connections to today's texts. Men, if we're claiming to follow Christ, perhaps our main attempts ought not to be macho, ought not to be trying to get our own way, ought not to be individualistic. Maybe if if you attempt this, uh, you shouldn't try and look like the guys on TV or the magazine or the movies. We ought to be known for According to Paul, living a life of holiness, a life where we're free from anger, a life where forgiveness flows freely, grace is given, and love is lavished upon everyone, whether we think they deserve it or not. We ought to pray. And if you feel so led with hands lifted up. Imagine what the watching world, those outside the faith, would think when they saw us more concerned with our position before a holy God 
than posturing for position in society. Women. I think society tells you that you need to look a certain way, wear certain things, draw as much attention to yourselves as you can. But if you're claiming to follow Christ, perhaps your and our emphasis ought to be focusing on what you do, not on your hairdo. Can you imagine what a watching world would think if you spent more time focused on your deeds instead of your dreads? Yeah? To be focused on others takes heart work. Especially when the culture and society tells you that your value is in how you look. It's time, I think, stemming from these three verses, to kick back a little bit. Be interesting to see how these three verses tie into the rest of this passage. We won't do that today. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful, <clears throat> thankful, and uh, humble that you choose to speak to us still today. That you choose through your word to bring light upon what and how we need to live. God, I'll admit that it's difficult to take a text that, uh, that has been translated a certain way for so many years, to take it uh, without knowing the cultural context and to, to set certain rules and regulations by it. But I ask that you help us see why these things were written and how they apply to us. God, we want to be men and women who are known for being holy who are known for being free from anger and quarreling, who are known for what we do, not for what we look like. And Father, the only way that that can happen is if you do the work in our hearts, and then through that we do the hard work of daily choosing to focus on you. So we ask this week that you help us to do that. May we, may we pursue holiness and may we pursue good deeds so that your name will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're not going to sing a final song, at least not the one listed in your bulletin. Um, pray for Stacia. She's not feeling well. She was going to be leaving this morning. So instead of singing that last song, we're going to sing the doxology. Because we know it. And because I can start it. Okay? So let's stand together. We're going to sing it through twice. Whoever just groaned, I'm taking it. That's because you were having trouble standing up, not because you don't like the doxology. <laughs> let's sing. Praise God from...
this week as you attempt to follow Christ in what culture says and ways that you ought to kick back against it, I pray that he would bless you. And I pray that he would protect you. I pray that in you do that, as you do that, he'd smile upon you and be gracious to you, and that he'd show you his favor and he'd give you his peace. Amen? Amen. One quick announcement. Okay. Okay. For those that didn't hear it, set your alarms Tuesday morning for 6.30, just so you can pray. For Richard and Carly, pray that that child would be raised in a home that fears God, that loves God, and that that child would come to an early living and saving faith in Christ. Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day. We'll see you next week.